to be back at Cornerstone. Um, I only missed my wife, my family missed only one Sunday, but it feels like we've been gone a long time. And, uh, you know, when I was doing our greeting time, people were saying, oh, it's been a while, I missed you, where have you been? And, and my, it felt like I was back in high school when I would ditch several days and <laughs> I would go back to school and everybody would be like, where have you been? And what happened? And I feel so guilty and embarrassed and, that's how I feel this morning. So, <laughs> but good to be back. And uh, Jimmy and Sharon, still no news yet, huh? <laughs> you know, my wife and I are saying, like, what's going on? I mean, your due date has passed. No. This week. Okay. So, I was staying with uh, Elizabeth. It was, uh, I think, a day after her due date. So, but we thought by now you guys be holding your baby. But, you know, we'll wait. Maybe this week. By 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. That's how it usually happens. Okay, oh, to be back. Um, well, we'll just get right into it. I've got, you know, so much to share from our, our text this morning. And, uh, the sermon title is Sanctification by Works or by Faith. Another title could be, uh, I was wrong part two, right? So, I was wrong part two. And I'm sure a few of you are thinking, uh, can we get a pass through and get to write the first time? <laughs> you know, why do we, how come it's constantly like, uh, changing on us? And, uh, you're telling me, that's how I feel. I feel like, what's going on? I've been in this ministry business for over 15 years. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. And really, uh, studying the Bible and teaching for over 15, and I'm still growing in my understanding of the gospel, learning, just, uh, just figuring out Really, what the message of the Bible, my only consolation is that I'm not uh, this uh, Mr. Graham Parker. I know you heard of this guy. He spent 26 years to solve the Rubik's Cube. And after 26 years, he bought it in 1983. And he officially set the world record in how long it takes a person to solve the Rubik's Cube. He, uh, he missed major events of his life because of this. He said he had uh, wrist problems and back problems uh, because of this. He actually got married during this 26 years, and his wife always felt there was a third person in their marriage, and that was the Rubik's Cube. And he finally solved it like a few months ago, and uh, he said he wept. Uh, I don't know if there were tears of joy or tears of just wasting 26 years of his life to solve this, uh, solve this um, cube. Well, that's a little like how I feel. I, I, I feel better because I'm not spending my best years of my life uh, um, figuring out the Rubik's Cube. I'm really spending the best years of my life trying to understand the gospel, figuring out, trying to grow in it. And I, there has been a change. There has been a significant change um, in the past few months. And uh, as I shared earlier, the world has changed for me and for our leaders and for our church. Now, the first time I was wrong, uh, I was wrong about everything except for the real, just basic gospel of Christ. Uh, before I grew in my understanding of the scriptures, I was an Arminian. I was uh, charismatic. I spoke in tongues. I denied the sufficiency of the scriptures. I believed in psychology and evidentialism. I was an egalitarian. I believed in women leading and exercising authority. 
and, and, and helped that my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, agreed with that. So <laughs> that helped our relationship until we learned God's Word. I mean, I was wrong about just about everything apart from Jesus dying on the cross for me. So that was a much greater shift in my theological, philosophical, practical paradigm. This time, I was wrong part two. I was just wrong about one word. Okay? So, all right, happened to anybody? I was just wrong about a single word. You know, I left one word out. Um, and the word is alone. Word is alone. I had left my Reformed theology at the cross, at my conversion. I believed that I was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I was Reformed. I am Calvinistic in my soteriology. I wholly believe Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord, that He is indeed the author of my salvation. And yet, my Reformed theology, I left at the foot of the cross and at the point of my conversion. From that point on, I was a semi-Pelagian. Pelagius was a 5th century a heretic. Church, you know, the church councils labeled him rightly as a heretic. He was uh, resolute in repudiating the theology of Aurelius Augustine. Augustine believed in the freedom of God, that salvation is wholly the work of God, not of man, that man is definitely and totally depraved. He is helpless in his predicament of his sins. He is enslaved to sin. There is nothing he can do to cooperate with God, to save himself. Therefore, it is by grace alone that man is saved. Pelagius was, by the scriptures, by the council of the scriptures, deemed a heretic against the gospel. But with the Reformation, a new form of Pelagianism began in the 16th century. Uh, Jacobus Arminius uh, was a proponent of this form of Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. They believed in prevenient grace. When Christ died, he gave grace to the whole world whereby now there is an island of righteousness in all, man, all, all mankind. There is some place of purity, of moral truth, of, where logic can influence a person, enable him or her to trust in Christ and be saved. So in a sense, it's not outright Pelagianism, but it's semi-Pelagianism. There is 1% of righteousness in a man where he can work, work with God to be saved. Well, as a complete, you know, believer in Reformed theology, I, I reject that in my salvation, but in terms of my sanctification, I was schizophrenic. I, I, my Reformation stopped, Reformed theology stopped at salvation. In terms of sanctification, I believe, I didn't believe in faith alone. I believe faith uh, plus good works equals salvation. A, a Roman Catholic, a workspace, moralist, legalistic approach to the Christian life. I mean, we, we do this in FOF. The Roman Catholic formula for salvation is faith plus good works equals salvation. They would agree that we are saved by faith, but they take out the word alone. So their formula is faith plus good works equals salvation. And under that category of good works, they would include, you know, 
baptism, catechism, you know, avoiding certain sins, doing virtuous deeds. All those things are under the category of good works. If you do that and you believe, then you're saved. And then they're consistent in their sanctification as well. Faith plus good works equals sanctification. They take out all the paradoxes, all the mystery, all the the work of God in terms of salvation and sanctification. It's holy man's work. It makes sense. It's linear. It's not dynamic. It's one plus one is two. And you believe and you're a good person, you're saved. And once you're saved, you're good, then you're, you grow as a Christian. And if you're not growing as a Christian, it's because you're not good. You're not going to Mass. You're not taking the elements. You're not going to confessions. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. That's the reason why you're not growing. There is no mystery. There's no paradox. There is no God. There's no gospel. It's just purely man's work. Well, for me, my formula for salvation, again, was faith equals salvation and good works. By trusting in Christ... By placing my hope in the cross alone, God saves me. It's not by works. It's not by effort. It's not by any achievement or endeavor on my part. All I contribute to my salvation is my sins, my evil, my depravity. God does it all. He is the one who saves. He came on a rescue mission, Luke 19.10. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So I was blind, I was deaf, I was hard, of, my heart was hard, and in fact, Ephesians 2 1 says, I was dead in trespass. I was spiritually dead. Um, there was nothing that I could do to save myself. I was like Lazarus in the grave. There was no way I could give life to myself and, and move that stone and come out on my own power. The only way that was possible is if Christ would have called me the efficacious call of the gospel, not just externally, but more importantly, the internal call of the Holy Spirit. If Christ calls my name, He knows me, loves me, and in spite of my sins, He has compassion, mercy, and pity on my soul. He calls me, then I am saved. I believe that. But once saved, my formula was faith plus good works equals sanctification. I took out that word alone. Faith in the broad sense. I must believe, but I must do A, B, C, D, E, F, G for me to grow in Christ, for me to mature, for me to be a good husband, good father, good pastor, good friend. You know, to please God, you name it. I had to do these things. I had to like kick off this list of things, and this list get kept growing. Every sermon. Every book I read, the list got longer and longer. And what was difficult for me was, I mean, in the sense I was like 20 years old, I couldn't backslide. You know, I couldn't, you know, I, I know you guys backslide a little bit, right? You guys, well, you guys have a choice. Like, you know what, I just, I'm just going to backslide, right? I'm just going to veg and watch TV and I'm going to let my Christianity go. I'm not going to listen to the sermon, I'm not going to love people for a while, right? How do you guys do that, right? Come on. Let's be honest. But I can't, right? I, I couldn't because, why? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm in the ministry, right? Like, I can't backslide because, like, I'm in, the, I'm in the ministry. I'm a pastor, right? So there's, 
outward constraints upon me, physical, relational, practical constraints that constrain me to do what I'm doing even though my heart's far away. Even though I'm not motivated, even though I'm not, my desire is ebbing, you know, my heart is bad, I'm, you know, I've got fear, anxiety, fear of man, you know, all these things, I have to keep grinding it out, right? So you do that for a few years, and then a decade, and then 15 years, and wow, it's just, it gets really, you know, I know a little bit what it's like to be a Roman Catholic, you know, I know a little bit what it's like to be a Muslim, to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who were their, their measure of their morality, their measure of their righteousness is all based on externals, and their hearts are far away. Because not in terms of salvation, but in terms of sanctification, that's the world in which I lived. And um, it, was in, it was in that context um, that, that God helped me. God opened my eyes to see... That salvation, for me to, they are definitely two distinct works of God. Salvation, sanctification, and glorification. They are three distinct works of God. But for us to participate, for us to be involved, for us to receive these benefits, these great privileges, remains the same. It is all by faith alone. In fact, it's all, even from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, it's all by faith alone. There are different, dis, different dispensations, different administrations, economies in which God related to man. But it was always by faith. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 4. That it wasn't Abraham worked and now it's faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. To the man who works, it's wage. It's payment. But to the man who trusts in God, it is grace. Abraham believed he is the father of faith. And that's what we are doing, trying to do. That's what Paul was saying. And even in heaven, it would be by faith. I had um, separated these categories into faith and then works and then faith. And um, God helped me to see that by taking out that one word, the Christian life became my work, my effort. You know, it became a source of my boasting. It became a source of my means to an end. That I was doing a lot of these, you know, most of these things. You know, in my heart, the legalist of my heart was doing as a means to an end. It was a means to control, means to receive, means to get. Um, you know, as a... As a as a means and not an end, end in itself. Um, you know, even this morning I was coming and I, there was extra pressure this morning because of Q&A. Um, and I was preaching to my heart, James, trust in God, you know, believe in Christ. And yet the legalist in my heart was saying, yeah, do that because if you believe in God, you'll do a good job in asking questions. And I was like, James, like, oh, that's how like... Legalism is so deep in us that I want to take the gospel and faith in the gospel and use it for my end. I said, James, no, you want to believe in Christ so that God will be pleased by Q&A, right? Not so that people will be impressed by Q&A, but that God will be pleased, that we, I would glorify the gospel, that I would exalt Him. 
I can't use my faith in the gospel as a means to my own boasting. Right? I mean, that, those habits run, run deep. Now, how did this happen? How did I miss, uh, miss this? How did I remove that word alone? Um, well, first and foremost, I took it out because I presumed the gospel. I thought, once you're a Christian, I, I knew better, but I just didn't connect it. I thought, I just presume once you're a Christian, like, I, I presumed upon my own righteousness. I, I, I didn't realize the depth of my depravity, that it comes out not just in sinfulness, selfishness, antinomianism, libertine, but in legalism as well. In my wildest dreams, I never thought I was of any danger of being a legalist. I, I mean, you guys know my background. If you guys knew me, that's, that's how I thought. Like, yeah, danger of selfishness. Man, I'm a selfish guy. I, I, I love, like, pleasure. I love food. I love sleeping. You know, I love resting. I love being left alone, <laughs> right? I love myself. So antinomianism, libertinism, right? Um, hedonism, yeah, that's a danger for me. So if anything, I have to fight that by going this direction. Because I, there's no danger of me being a legalist. But uh, finding out that the default state of my heart is religion, right? Is, is moralism, is legalist. That there are two autos in my heart, and there are two ways to go astray from the gospel. Two ways, both ways of undermining the gospel and displeasing God and grieving the Holy Spirit. I, you know, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? You grieve when you say, I'm going to sin. I'm going to backslide. I'm going to say bad things to my family. I'm going to grumble. I'm going to complain. I'm going to please myself. I'm going to live for myself. You grieve the Holy Spirit. At the same time, you, you try to stop sinning. I'm going to say nice things. I'm going to be encouraging. I'm going to serve others. But you do it leaving the Holy Spirit out. You still grieve the Holy Spirit. If you attempt to be righteous, obey the Scriptures, not by the Spirit, but by the flesh, we grieve the Holy Spirit. James, is that possible? Can people actually stop sinning without the Holy Spirit? Man, just go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd go to any drug treatment program. I'd go to, just go to any uh, Roman Catholic church or any, you know, false heretical churches. I mean, just go anywhere, right? Go to jail. <laughs> go to prisons. And you'll see, wow, people can overcome sin by their flesh alone, external sins. Right. But once they do, it just grows their pride and self-righteousness. When we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. There are both ways of grieving the Holy Spirit. And that's why I didn't know. You know. I thought it was all about to stop sinning and do what is right. Motivation was of no importance. And yet, realized I was grieving the Holy Spirit. I wasn't pleasing God. Uh, learning that motivation is determinative. God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. God is not man that he should look at the outer or appearance, but he looks at the heart. He considers a man's motivations. 1 Corinthians 3, in the day, great day of the believer's judgment, 
at that day, the, ju- the believers will go through a believer's judgment, and it will be revealed whether they built their Christian life with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, or st- straw. And at that time, Paul says, God will expose the motives of men's hearts. And for those whose motives were the gospel, they will receive reward. But those whose motives were their own self-righteousness, their pride, fear of man, pleasing man, their own glory, their own boasting, it will all be burned away. They will be saved, but as those escaping to the flames. I mean, God is interested. You know, God, I mean, His first and foremost concern is our motivations. It's what's in the heart. I I really don't think He cares about what we do. Because He understands what's in our minds will travel to our hearts, will travel to our hands, head to the heart to the hands. Really, what we do is a function of what's in in our inner man. So the fruit is his work. But motivation, it determines the kind of fruit. And so motivation is everything. That's why um, I'm really going on a tangent here a bit. I mean, and I'm repeating myself, but it's been a while, so it's okay. Uh, they, They asked Christ, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And after Peter denied him three times in Galilee, in John 21, Christ's question was, what did you do? What did you do, Peter? Did you do what you said you'd do? You said you'd die for me, right? Is that, did I mishear you? I specifically remember you saying, you'll never deny me. Is that what you did? No. Christ's question to Peter is, do you love me? Do you love me? Before, when you said those things, Peter... You weren't saying those things because you loved me. You rebuked me, remember? Remember Peter was rebuking Christ? That he was wrong. Hey, you old man, you don't understand my heart. Right? Peter wasn't saying those things because he loved Christ. He was saying that out of his own pride. Out of his own just male machismo pride. Right? So Christ is asking now, now do you love me? Right. Is that what's in your heart? I mean... Those are things I, I didn't see. My default state, my legalistic state, blinded me to these truths. There were moments, and if you guys are here long enough, you guys know there were moments where we saw a glimpse of these things. We saw a glimmer of these truths in our preaching, in our ministry, in our life. But that, because that word alone was removed, it was all really based on that one buttress of our works. It was all like contingent upon what we must do. So it wasn't on, we didn't build it on the rock. We built it on sandy land. And when trials happen, when disappointments happen, it would all come falling apart. In the first place, I got it was my own heart. Um, second place is, um, you know, this is the majority view of the church today. The sanctification by works. It is uh, the pervasive view, even by most teachers whom I love, whom I respect, whom I trust more than me. He's a man I trust more than I trust myself. And yet, for most of them, their views are. Uh, that's the, 
how, you know, the Pelagian captivity of the church. Uh, R.C. Spoel talks about that. It's not just inside. The, the captivity is so great, so strong. It has permeated the church, this man-centered perspective. And so we try to reform it, but yet Christians are still struggling to take it beyond salvation. In terms of sanctification, it is still oh, man-centered. Um, one author whom I respect tremendously wrote, and I, I, this was kind of my credo. I would go back to this. He said, while, the common, while common grace and transforming, saving grace is unconditional, God's sustaining grace, grace that sanctifies us, and God's future grace is conditional. These are verbatim. I'm quoting, and to be sure, there is unconditional grace, and it is the glorious foundation of all else in the Christian life, but there is also conditional grace. For most people who breathe the popular air of grace and compassion today, conditional grace sounds like an oxymoron, like heavy feathers. So, for example, when people hear the promise of James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble, many have a hard time thinking about a grace that is conditioned upon humility. Conditional promises are woven all throughout the New Testament. And he quotes several verses, like, If you forgive men, I will forgive you. Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue sanctification without no one will see the Lord. And so my heart is legalist. And I, I never f- sensed that I have any danger of being a legalist. I thought I was antinomian. So I'm pressing towards legalism. I'm leaning towards it. And the men that I respect are telling me that for the Christian life and ministry, it's conditional upon my work, that everything I do, my life, my ministry, is all based on my effort. So I am just on this path of sanctification by works alone, not by faith alone. Even a lot of the literature out there talking about the cross-focused life, being Christ-focused, cross-focused. It is a, it's really a condiment kind of approach to this. And that's how, what I was doing for a few years. Um, even the pastoral staff, like be cross-focused. But it was still, you know, the hot dog was still works, right? We still got to do it. So we got to be cross-focused. You have to be humble, be passionate, be transparent, be vulnerable. What's wrong with you? Right? Do these things, and then on sprinkle it on top, you'll put the condiment of the cross, of the gospel, of God's finished work. But what we're eating was still our work. It was in that kind of context where I, mean, I stumbled upon... Uh, Sanctification by faith alone. Sanctification through faith alone. And uh, wow, it's amazing. When I discovered the doctrines of grace, I mean, it was like, you know, being saved again. I never, it was a whole new appreciation of how sinful I was and how gracious our God is. But it's not experienced all over again. But it's so much more powerful because it's not 2,000 years ago. It's not 21 years ago when I got saved. It's right now. I mean, Jesus died for me like yesterday. 
in his sanctification by faith alone. Like he loves me in spite of how sinful I am. Of my legalism. Of my pride. Of my self-righteousness. How I've used God. How I've made him a pawn in my own chessboard. I, I mean, I, I've discovered God is so much more gracious, loving, and kind than I ever imagined. And I discovered I am so much more sinful. I am so much more depraved and wicked. It's so much so that I don't have any righteousness. Any, you know, that's what Paul said in Romans 7. My woe to me. What a wretched man I am. Like he understood it wasn't what a wretched man I was. And then God saved me. So now I have this island of righteousness. So what a wretched man, 95% I am. He said, I am a wretched man right now. There is no island of righteousness. I'm thoroughly bankrupt still. And even my motivations, I am helpless to have right motivations. The only way for me is to believe in the gospel for today. The only, only way for me to have right motivations, to, to live by the gospel, to be walking in the spirit, to be humble, to be transparent, to be an encouragement, to be all these things that God wants me to be. The only way for me to please God is by faith in the gospel. If I endeavor to please God apart from the gospel, I am not pleasing God. I am grieving His paraclete, His helper, the comforter. I am to do it by the Spirit, not by the flesh. In Romans fifteen seventeen, you know, it just it's crazy. Like Romans one fifteen. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Tells us gospel is for believers. Romans 1.16 says gospel is for salvation to the Jew first, also the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.17 says the just, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, I, you know like, that's like third grade grammar. It's the righteous, those who believe in the gospel shall live by faith in the gospel. It is not back to works. It's not back to Egypt. Not back to the Mosaic law. Once they've been delivered from the law, they are to continue to walk in the grace that God gave to them in the cross by faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10 Paul talks about how by the grace of God I am what I am. Previously, he was, ta- he was sharing his salvation testimony, how he's the least of all the apostles. He's actually unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church. But now he's an apostle. Why? Because of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Salvation by, by grace through faith alone. The very next phrase. 1 Corinthians 15.10 and this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. He's saying, I am saved by the grace of God. 
and my Christian life. He says the authority of Scripture. I worked harder than all of them. No one works harder than me. But he's saying it's not me. It's by the grace of God that is in me. There are so many passages in the New Testament that we can turn to for me to uh, defend my thesis to you this morning. I I propose this and I want to defend it. That salvation is by faith alone. That sanctification is also through faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Acts 26, 18. Paul testifies to King Agrippa that God opened their eyes that they may receive forgiveness of sins and be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God opened up our eyes to be saved and so that we might be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who is, calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. The sanctification is God's work. Paul says, I am confident because God will sanctify you. He, was, he is faithful, he will surely do it. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. He will do it. About Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's death was effectual. It was irresistible in terms of our salvation and in terms of our sanctification. That which he promised to do, he will do it. That which he willed will come to pass. Christ died not just to make salvation possible, but to save us. Christ died not just to make sanctification possible, but to accomplish it. But the text I want to turn to this morning and next week is Galatians 2. Galatians 2, 15, all the way to... uh, Chapter 3, verse 6. Now, we might not actually get to the text this morning because the intro was far longer than I intended. right? And I haven't actually begun my intro yet into the book of Galatians. So, so just you know, think of it as you're sitting through one sermon separated by seven days. right? Today's the intro. We'll get to the text. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get to a little bit this week, but probably by next week. Um, the book of Galatians has been conferred with such titles as the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty. This was the book that was used as the battle cry for the Reformation. 
it was used by our reformers as their declaration of independence. It is clearly the Holy Spirit's charter of spiritual freedom for those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Merrill C. Tenney wrote of Galatians, Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan if this book was never written, because Galatians defends the implications of the gospel. Book of Romans defends the, the theology of the gospel. Salvation by faith alone. Paul defends that in a the theological way. Here in Galatians, Paul defends the implications, how we are sanctified by faith alone. The backdoor way, how it's subverted. He protects the gospel by protecting the backdoor by which false teachers subvert the freedom that Christians have in the gospel of Christ. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism and all other religions. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation, because its teaching of salvation by grace alone is the dominant theme, and became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. It is what has granted freedom to believers, deliverance by Christ, from religious legalism. Many uh, church historians maintain that the foundation of the Reformation was laid not with the 95 theses in the Wittenberg door by Luther. The foundation, the engine of the Reformation was laid when Luther studied Galatians and he wrote that commentary. When he explained Galatians to Christians, it was like dynamite. It was an explosion. Christian understood that, you know, it's like all your lives were in downtown Disney. Imagine that, right? That's a visceral illustration for us, right? For many of us. I, I, you know, when I was young, I remember my parents taking me to Magic Mountain and you know, my parents were kind of slow with everything and we arrived at 4 p.m. <laughs> I'm like scarred. That's why whenever our household, we go to like any amusement park, let's go early. I don't want to scar my children. They'll remember this for the rest of their lives. So we got there at 4 p.m. and they wouldn't let any more people in. So we were turned away, right, at the ticket booth. And I saw the roller coaster ride. I saw the balloons. I saw the, you know, mascots, you know, the like the cheaper version of Disneyland. I can't even recognize these characters, but <laughs> they looked real fun. And we turned away, and I went to get back in the car. I mean, I, I'm not exa- I've cried all the way home, right? Like bitter tears, right? So close, turned away. That's how it is for Christians who are laboring by works. You're at the ticket booth. You have the ticket, but you can't go in. Because you're endeavoring to work yourself in without using the ticket. You're trying to climb over the gate through your own efforts. And you're always on the outside looking in. Looking at other Christians. Man, like, that guy, he loves the Lord so much. and Wow, he has such freedom and such joy. They have such passion for Christ and for me. It's all just like 
duty and drudgery and grinding it out. And I'm, my walk with God is dry and I'm fearing burning out and I'm, I'm always tired. How come dare enjoying the Christian life? And for me, it just works. It's because you're endeavoring to get into my works. But that's all here in isolation. But in the 16th century, that was everybody. Like everybody was in downtown Disney. And there was nobody in Disneyland except for Luther, right? Luther's there by himself. And he's like, come on in. And nobody would come. So he, he writes his commentary on Galatians. And the light bulbs go off. And it was like a revival. Like, it was like a flame. I mean, burning across Western Europe, Eastern Europe, all over the world, where people understood, I have this ticket called faith. I don't have to try to get in. <laughs> My dad owns Disneyland. This belongs to me. And I just need to walk by faith and trust in this ticket rather than my own efforts. And all these people came rushing in and was delivered from bondage. Christian, believe, Christian historians say that occurred when Luther wrote the commentary in Galatians. Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. It's mine. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. I am married to it. Galatians is my Catherine, name of his wife. Galatians is my wife. It was out of his careful and submissive study of Scripture especially the book of Galatians, that Luther discovered God's plan of salvation by grace alone, working out through faith for the entire Christian life. And uh, I'm going to do this for the rest of our time. Who would I rather have speak this morning? James Shin or Martin Luther? Right. It's not even a, compar- not even a choice. I'm going to read to you Luther's introductory statements to his commentary, his preface to the commentary, and then we'll close our time. So much time has passed. This is Martin Luther's opening statements, how he introduced his commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. He began, this is the most important thing in the world. The one doctrine which I have supremely in my heart is that of faith in Christ, from whom, through whom, and unto whom all my theological thinking flows back and forth day and night. This rock, which we call the doctrine of justification through faith alone, was shaken by Satan in paradise when he persuaded our first parents that they might, by their own wisdom and power, become like God. Ever since then, the whole world has invented innumerable innumerable religions and ways through which, without the aid of Christ, use their works to redeem themselves from evil and sins. When Paul discusses, discusses the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, he's speaking of Christian righteousness. Paul calls the righteousness of faith, that is Christian righteousness, God imputes it to us apart from our works. In other words, it is passive righteousness. 
as all others are active. For we do nothing for it. We give nothing to gain it. We only receive it. The need for Christian righteousness, this quote, passive righteousness, is a mystery that the world and the human mind cannot understand. Indeed, Christians never completely understand it themselves and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice. Anyone who does not understand this passive righteousness or cherish it in their heart and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like this passive righteousness. For human beings by nature, when they get near either danger or death itself, will of necessity examine their own worthiness. We defend ourselves before all threats by recounting our deeds and moral efforts. But then the remembrance of sins and the flaws inevitably come to mind. And this tears us apart and we think, how many errors and sins and wrongs I have done. Please God, let me live so I can fix and amend them. At default, we are moralists. We We become obsessed with our active righteousness and are terrified by our imperfections. But the real evil is that we trust our own power to be righteous. And we will not lift up our eyes to see what Christ has done for us. So the troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace offered free of charge in Jesus Christ, which is this passive or Christian righteousness. If I tried to fulfill the law myself, I could not trust in what I had accomplished. Neither could it stand up to the judgment of God. So, I rest upon only the righteousness of Christ, which I do not produce, but receive. God the Father freely giving it to us through Jesus Christ. On law and grace. It is an absolute and unique teaching in all the world to teach people through Christ to live as if there were no law, no wrath, or no punishment. Repeat that. It is a unique teaching to teach people that through Christ we must live as if there is no law. There is no wrath. There is no punishment for Christians. In a sense, these do not exist any longer for the Christian. Only thing that exists for the Christian is grace. Total mercy for Christ's sake. Once you are in Christ, the law is the greatest guide for your life. But until you have Christian righteousness, all the law can do is to show you how sinful and condemned you are. In fact, to those outside of Christian righteousness, the law needs to be expounded in all its force. Why? So that people who think they have power to be righteous before God will be humbled by the law. And understand that they are sinners. But once we have Christ, the law doesn't exist for the Christian. It is but mere guide. All that exists 
is complete grace and complete mercy. So then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? He's saying, we have, so we don't have to do anything to obtain this passive righteousness? We don't have to do anything? The answer is, and he, exclamation, no, nothing at all. We don't do anything to obtain this righteousness. This righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now therefore God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives. He is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness. But I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. One more page and I'm done. Living by the gospel. Living the gospel. While we live here on earth, we will be accused, exercised with temptations, oppressed with heaviness and sorrow, bruised by the law with its demands of active righteousness. Because of this, Paul sets out in this letter of Galatians to teach us, to comfort us, and to keep us completely aware of this Christian passive righteousness. For if this truth of being justified by Christ alone, not by our works, is lost, then all Christian truths are lost. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There are people who are telling Luther, you've got to be balanced. You have to find the middle ground. And Luther is saying, no, there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness. The only other option is works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence in the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. This distinction is easy to utter in words, but to use it and experience it is very hard. So I challenge you to exercise yourselves continually in these matters through study, reading, meditation, and the word and prayer. So that in the time of trial, you will be able to both inform and comfort both your consciences and others. To bring them from law to grace. From active works righteousness to passive Christ righteousness. In times of struggle, the devil will seek to terrify us by using against us our past record and the wrath and law of God. So if we cannot see the differences between two kinds of righteousness, and if we do not take hold of Christ by faith, sitting at the right hand of God, and pleading our case as sinners to the Father, then we are under the law, not under grace. Christ is no Savior, but a lawgiver. No longer our salvation, but eternal despair. 
when we are assured of this righteousness, we not only cheerfully work well in our vocations, but we submit to all manner of burdens and dangers in this present life because we know that this is the will of God, that this obedience pleases Him. This then is the argument of the epistle here, which Paul expounds against the false teachers who had darkened the Galatians' understanding of this righteousness by faith alone. I will post this on our website for you to read this week and to consider what Luther was trying to convey as he tried to convey what Paul was saying in his letter to the Galatians. To sum it up and to prep us for next week, it is contained in verses 20 and 21 of Galatians 2. Where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see how Paul ties justification and sanctification. How did I die to the law? The law has no influence in me. The law is not over me. It has no authority. It has no power because I have died. How did I die to the law? Because I have been crucified with Christ. I am buried with Him. And now I live. But how do I live? I live trusting in Jesus Christ believing in Him, hoping in Him. My confidence is not my works, my righteousness, what I do, who I am. My complete reliance is upon Christ and Christ alone. He's my hope for it all. Justification and sanctification. I know our hearts, we want an application right here. We want God to reduce it down. So now what do I do? Please reduce that gospel to active righteousness. Like Dan, Pastor Dan, last three weeks was pounding on that truth. We want to reduce the gospel to some kind of moral work that we can kind of do and in our hearts boast in. What we're called to do is behold the cross, to rest, to gaze, to hope, to trust, to love, to understand. Just gaze and believe and trust. And let God take care of the sanctification. Right? If not, let go and let God. We're not pi- pr- proposing a pietistic approach to Christianity. It's the same thing we will tell unbelievers. When you tell unbelievers... The gospel, they would say, what must I do? Should I get baptized now, go to church, tithe, you know, membership, go to missions trips? What must I do? We say, no, just trust Christ and you'll be saved. You will do these things, but God will do them through you. Just trust Christ. Well, same thing for us as Christians. Same thing. What must I do to grow? No, trust Christ. 
But do I need to do all these things? Right? Do Bible study, memorize verses, pray, you know, a couple hours a week or a day, or go to a mission trip to grow as a Christian? Right? No, we will say, same thing, just trust in the gospel. And watch the Spirit work. Watch the inevitable, right, the gradual uh, fruit uh, that will be produced in your life all by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, what joy. How sweet it is to gather together and to consider the cross and consider that you did not die in vain. You did not just die to provide salvation or provide sanctification or to provide glorification. No, you died so that all may be accomplished, that it might be done all for your own glory and the glory of the Father. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not we would in a sinful way if it was up to us. We work it out with fear and trembling because it is you. It is God who works in us. The willing to act according to your great purpose. So we are just being carried away by your truth, by the power of the gospel. So Lord, may our hearts not be restless. May our hearts be fully at rest in what you have done for us. And by faith, may we enter into the promised land and rest in you and enjoy all the fruits that you have given to us in Christ. Lord, I pray for all the saints here, all those who are striving, all those who are laboring, all those who are uh, punishing themselves for uh, their failures and weaknesses and shortcomings and sins. Lord, may May your grace and the cross of Christ shine brighter in their eyes. And may they, may you irresistibly draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.